Oh my stars, I am so thrilled you're here. My name is Kai Graham and welcome to another episode in my podcast, The Parent and Teen Toolbox, which is designed to equip parents and teenagers with the tools for navigating adolescence. I've been in the trenches of parenting and now I'm on a mission to help parents support their teenagers so that together we can build a mentally healthier and happier generation of young people. Each week you will receive learnings and takeaways that will help you tackle the challenges and the oh shit moments that are often associated with parenting tweens and teens. I have your back and I'm glad you're here. Ladies and gents, I am so excited about today's episode. Um, I have with me the wonderful Avril Annette. Um, Avril is an Ollie coach, and I'll tell you about that in a minute. But Avril's knowledge and experience as a mental health nurse and as a mum to a child with additional needs attracted her to the Ollie concept. She said, it grasped me immediately as its core beliefs really resonated with me, especially all behaviour serves a purpose and there is no bad children or there are no bad children. It was exactly the type of therapy model that would have supported my daughter with her emotions and mental health, her siblings and us as a family. Now, just to let you know that um, the Ollie and his superpowers concept is all about really helping children and young people and adults understand why we feel the way that we feel. And really, the superpowers are our emotions and our feelings. At the heart of the Ollie concept is a passion to building the resilience and well-being of children and young people. And using strengths-based approach, Ollie coaching empowers children and young people to understand, manage and control their emotions rather than being controlled by them. So, Avril, thank you so much for coming on. Um, Unlike many of the episodes where we just sort of start chatting about sort of, you know, whatever the zone of genius is, um, I would love you um, to share your story because even this week I've been chatting to parents who are struggling with their own kids who are sort of being hampered by the system, ignored by the system, um, whatever that entails. And I just know that you never took no for an answer so and 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 rightly so so could you share a little bit about that for us and tell us sort of what you went through yeah I'm a mum to four grown-up children so my daughter she's the youngest I have three older boys and it's my daughter that has the additional needs and I suppose we knew from a very young age that there was something going on but we didn't know what it was um and we tried lots of different approaches Um, Some worked, some didn't, but ultimately we were left sort of baffled because we had this, what we thought was a very headstrong child who wasn't listening, who wasn't sharing, who wasn't playing with her siblings. Um, And I started to question, was there something going on with her? So she went to playgroup and we got some reports back from there that She distanced herself. She wasn't sharing. She wasn't playing. She wasn't sitting down in circle time to listen to stories. And I suppose, well, I just thought, you know what, maybe she's just a little bit different to the rest of the children there. And she was certainly a little bit different, let's say, to her siblings. But we went along with it because we thought it's not causing any major upheaval. It's just a few wee quirks that she had is what we thought. And then we thought, well, she's the only girl. She's fighting her way amongst three boys, three older siblings. So when she went to primary school, it sort of became very apparent very quickly that she wasn't settling. We were getting reports back from school that not only was she headstrong, that she wouldn't share. Sharing seemed to be the big thing coming through. And then we'd get a lot from her teacher that she was answering back a lot, that she was standing her ground. And I remember her teacher saying at the time she'd make a great politician. (laughs) And this was a child who had literally turned four in June and had started primary one in the September. So she was the youngest actually in her class as well. And already being (laughs) labelled. Totally. 
Totally. I think it was towards the end of primary one, if not going into primary two, that the bad behaviour and that label of she's a badly behaved child was brought out there as such. Mm -hmm. And I thought my first thing was, right, what have I done wrong? It must be me. I'm not... um, I'm not I'm I'm bending the rules for her. I'm not doing what I should be doing as a parent. And I started to doubt myself until I realized, you know, this is not about me. This is not about our family dynamic. She has been treated exactly the same as her brothers were treated. There was no difference made. Um and I, I suppose I started then to question, right, what is really going on here? Because we realized very quickly that no was a big trigger word. We realized that asking her to do anything um, triggered an outburst. Um, And we thought at the time, you know, these aren't tantrums. There's definitely something else going on here. She's she's nearly five now. So so our first port of call was obviously school. Um, And then it shocked me because I got the, you're doing something wrong. It's your parenting. Um, You're letting her away with stuff. She's the youngest in the family. She's the only girl. It wasn't, well, let's just see what we can do here. And I think looking back, school and the teachers that she had, they didn't know where to go with her either. You know, they, the school was fantastic. I have to say that they were brilliant. And when, you know, that support that I needed for me was definitely there, but Mm -hmm. there was no support for her. Um, no, no, because I think we were all the same. We were sort of banging our heads off the wall, wondering what is going on with this child. And it wasn't really till primary three when she had a completely different teacher who looked at it differently. I had said to her when she was doing that transition, I had said, look, let's look beyond what you're seeing in class. Let's look beyond that behavior. She's doing this for a reason. There's yeah. something going on below that surface of presenting behaviours and little did I realise at that time as you spoke there about all behaviour serves a purpose I learned that much later on obviously whenever I was doing my training as an Ollie coach so I started to look at it a lot differently anybody then that um, Kate went to see obviously educational psychology got on board and again it was very much about she's badly behaved in class and I said please let's not use the badly behaved Let's look and see what's going on for this child below what we're seeing. And I said, she's not happy. And she wasn't happy. And we realized that then by primary five, there was a lot of school refusal. And I absolutely hate that term, but that's what they call it, school refusal. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it, it, it was all to do with anxiety. And primary four was a horrible year for for her a really horrible year she was more out of school than she was in school and it was it was very difficult it was very difficult not only as a parent it was very difficult for us as a family because at that stage then we had our siblings saying you know we don't want to play with her they wanted to exclude her completely um, because she was so unhappy and I realized it was obviously school school was the trigger that was making her a really unhappy child Um, And I made the decision then in the January of her primary five to take her out of school completely. By that stage, she'd had a statement of educational needs um, and she was described as a very complex child. Badly behaved, was used in it quite a few times. Um, And I suppose it went down the road of punishment what to do when this child is badly behaved rather than what do we do to support this child before we see this behavior. So that was a big eye opener for me. And I, I took her out of school and I remember being asked, you know, why are you doing this? And I said, to protect her mental health. I said, this is a, a nine year old child who is extremely unhappy, who is extremely anxious. And I said, we need to get to the bottom of why this is happening and, and why she feels this way. So I homeschooled her right through until the end of primary seven. And in primary, primary seven age, she had said that she wanted to go to big school. And my initial reaction as a parent was, no, 
Mm. I wanted to wrap her up in cotton wool, keep her safe, yeah, keep her at Understandably home. Understandably, after um, her previous experiences. Exactly. But I realized that, that that wasn't going to be of any benefit to her. That was that was benefiting me. That was <laughs> keeping me safe as a parent because I was controlling everything that was going on. I was keeping the anxiety at, at, at its lowest level. And I realized that asking her to do things which they talk about, those demands, those everyday demands, but they're not their everyday requests of asking your child to clear their plate from the table. Um, if you're going out to grab their coach, you know, um, I remember at school in the very early days, realizing that asking her to clean her teeth before she went to school was an absolutely huge trigger for her. Um, and it resulted in most days being late for school. But I thought at that time, it's better getting her there than not getting her there. Um, we now know that those demands those requ everyday requests are seen as um, anxiety-provoking questions because she didn't know what was expected of her. Even though I was saying, you have to clean your teeth, you have to get your coat, you have to grab your school bag, we have to go. It was like she couldn't control any of that. I was in control of that. And she panicked. So and we, we, we realised that. But e e Avril, even though something that is, I, I'm sort of trying to get my head around this, even though something as routine as, you know, she did her teeth the previous day and weeks beforehand, it's still on a daily basis created um, hassle, you know, sort of a, a trigger for her. Yeah. Is that correct? Wow. Okay. It, it definitely did, but it was twofold. At that stage then, we we were able to look back and and she was able then to tell us that the other thing that was causing her such anxiety was the toothpaste she has a complete aversion to mint um oh, wow. yeah I used to leave her to, when, when I realized that I used to then take her to school without cleaning my teeth because yeah. she couldn't sit in the car you know even behind you and in, in, in the back she couldn't sit in the car if someone had cleaned their teeth um so it's unraveling so, all this isn't it when you know sort of having the time yeah yeah Oh, bless her. Yeah. yeah. But I remember at that time, too, that that guilt that I, as a mum, had put, you know, the way you put that tiny little pea-sized piece of toothpaste when their first teeth come through and you're trying to clean their teeth. And she was absolutely distracted. She was trying to get off my knee. She was squealing. This was obviously before she had any, oh, any um, you know, her, her speech hadn't uh, developed. Yeah. And... I remember looking back and thinking, oh, what if I'd, I've created this in this child because there I was cleaning her teeth with mint toothpaste. Thinking you were um, doing even the right thing. A child's toothpaste. Yeah. Yeah. So as you say, lots of things started to unravel as she got much older. Um, so she went to secondary school. She picked the school she wanted to go to. Um, and at that stage, we had been seen in the autism um, assessment clinic on a number of occasions and each time we were told she ticks some boxes but are not, not enough to give her a diagnosis of autism okay um and because we didn't get that diagnosis we then couldn't join any support systems because there was no diagnosis and i then started to it, it was actually after i'd been to um Middletown Autism Centre, I'd gone on some training there and they had done some training on pathological demand avoidance. Um, now it's autism with a specific profile. So they talk about autism with a demand avoidant profile. Um, and the penny dropped. I realised very quickly that was my child that they were talking about. So I found myself then going as this parent telling the professionals that we're seeing my daughter yeah um have you considered have you looked at but it wasn't taken on board because it was a very relatively new diagnosis in northern ireland i think she was one of the first few to actually get a demand avoidant um, diagnosis um and it was like it, it was a different world it really was a different world when we started using the strategy 
And very quickly, we saw a change, a change in her as a child, a change in us as a family, because life was a lot easier for her. We weren't placing those demands. We, we were doing it in a different way. And I think I remember having a conversation with you about the teeth, the cleaning of the teeth. Instead of saying, um, you know, go and clean your teeth, I would do, right, okay, we're both going to clean our teeth. Let's see whose teeth are the sparkliest. And I would count to three, and then we would both run to clean our teeth. So I made a game out of it. But um, I also can, can I made it ask? something for her that she could, yeah. Sorry, sorry, I, I cut across you there. I think we've got a slight delay. Um, You're all right. Explain to me and to the listeners, for for those that either um, have no experience or just want a little bit more clarification, what is um, a, dev- a demand avoidance profile? What does that sort of entail? Well, if you if you would look at pathological demand avoidance in autism, they will say that it's an anxiety driven need to be in control. Got you. Right. So if we look at that with a child, if the child, for whatever reason, a reason that perhaps as parents we don't understand, but for whatever reason, if that child doesn't feel in control, the behavior and the emotion, the emotion that's presenting is anxiety. The behavior that you may see is a child who appears as angry, a child who appears as very frustrated, a child who maybe throws things because we've had all of that a child who slams every door in the house um, for what you feel as a parent is where did that come from until you realize that it's how you phrase something has created and enhanced that anxiety that they live with does that make sense that makes perfect does sense it, you know does that answer your question yeah 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 because yeah. sometimes I start talking and I think because I live with my daughter who's now 18 um, I think because I know her and I know what I'm talking about that other parents are getting it whenever they're maybe not. Yeah. If you yeah. No, it's it's just that I, I'm thinking about um, sort of, you know, mums that I've spoken to even in the last week. And, and this is just making perfect sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so how, how old was she when she had this diagnosis then? She didn't actually get that diagnosis until she was almost 13. Right, okay. We continued having an assessment here. They would do what they called a watchful wait and say they would see her in a year's time. And I think by that stage, I just got to that, no, this is not happening anymore. You know, someone has to listen. So I obviously was that crazy mum on Google researching everything, which is good and bad. Don't we all do it? You're seeing worst case scenarios. Yeah. Exactly. Um. We diagnose ourselves, we diagnose everything. Um, But at that stage, because I had no other avenue of support, I needed to find everything out for myself to be able to support her. Um, And when she was last seen in the autism assessment clinic, the pediatrician, her pediatrician was there at that appointment. And I think at that stage when they said, "Mm, no, we still don't think, you know, this is autism. I asked them to do a different assessment, an assessment that had indicators for pathological demand avoidance or a demand avoidant profile. Um, And it's called the DISCO assessment, which isn't used here because it's so long. Well, I'm not saying it isn't. It's rarely used because it's such a long, drawn out um, assessment. There's over 500 questions. Oh, wow. But 11, I think it's 11 of those relate to a demand avoidant profile. So eventually they said, after listening to me, harping on that they would use it because my argument was, how are you going to, you know, assess her if the assessment that you're using is not going to answer or ask some of those questions that need to be asked? That makes perfect sense, doesn't it? It totally does. And, and, And I sort of got the blank look and I said, right, okay, someone breaks their leg. I said, you're not going to send them to a heart surgeon because a heart surgeon isn't going to look at their leg and see what needs done with a broken leg. And I, as soon as I put it as plainly as that, it was, well, okay, we're listening. And I said, please just, you know, use this assessment. So they used it. 
And they said that she ticked the majority of the boxes, but there were a couple that she didn't. And I think at that minute, my world fell apart because I just thought, where do we go now? Um, and I think the pediatrician has obviously gone away and thought about it because within a week she rang me and she said, yeah, I think there is something else going on here that we're not getting. And it took a further two years and lots of red tape to actually get a specialist team across from the Elizabeth Newson Centre in Nottingham. And without going into all of the history, Elizabeth Newson, um, she is now, uh, she's no longer with us. But she was the first person to come up with this um, term pathological demand avoidance, because what she realised was that there were so many children out there that fitted into that autism area. Yeah. yeah. But there was something just a little bit different about them. And the team that came over, um, they spent time with us. They spent time with our daughter. And eventually, you know, her, her assessment came through as, yeah, we believe that she has autism but she has an, a, a demand avoidant profile in which she is extreme were the exact words that were written on it. Whoa. So, <laughs> I, I queried that because I'd got to be this mum who was querying absolutely everything yep. because I had to. Yeah. And I queried that diagnosis and I said, why is she not getting a diagnosis of pathological demand avoidance? And they said, because it wouldn't be helpful in Northern Ireland. Ironically, looking back, it would have been more helpful if, if she had got that diagnosis. What was and their reasoning behind that then? Well, because there hadn't been too many, I'm, I'm talking about a handful, too many of that, di- too many children diagnosed with that. Okay. They thought it would be more helpful if... They worded it differently so that she would get support okay. rather than that. Oh, that really doesn't exist. But it wasn't helpful because it was helpful and it wasn't helpful. There were certain things that we could do now that she she still had her statement of educational needs. So obviously, the next thing I wanted to do was to get that changed to include the diagnosis that she'd been given so that then the support that she needed, the techniques and the strategies that needed to be used with her were all incorporated onto that statement. But then the barriers come up again because she got um, autism put on the statement, but they didn't put anything in relation to the demand avoidance. Wow. Yeah. So I then said, well, how is any teacher or anyone that's going to be working with our daughter going to know the approaches to have with her, the strategies and the techniques to use, not only for them as teachers, but for her as a pupil in a school. So we we had a battle on our hands. And, and I do use the word battle because it was. Um, we had to go to a judicial review in the High Court in Belfast oh, to get her you. statement changed. And it was changed. Um, by that stage, then I had also asked for all of the staff um, to be trained in supporting our daughter, and a team then came over from the Elizabeth Newson Centre again to train the staff in her school, which was absolutely unheard of. It had never happened before in Northern Ireland, um, and the staff were trained to use specific uh, strategies with her. That made teaching. Their job was a lot easier. I can but imagine. It also, it also supported our daughter. It also helped her because the anxiety we- was kept just at that. It, it never went away. It never goes away. But if you can keep it at that level where it's, they talk about it rumbling. If it's yeah. just at that rumbling stage and you can support at that stage before it gets to the stage of, you know, it increases and 
but it, it is it's like it's like having it on that slow burn isn't it the whole it time and it it's is. just like watch waiting for something to just erupt or 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 to sort of boil over and to, yeah. to have the right strategies and techniques finally in place it as you rightly say it doesn't sort of it doesn't get rid of anything but it just no. reduces that risk of of your darling girl sort of you know just having her anxiety sort of yeah. triggered again yeah yeah, yeah. so um she returned to school after the training we'd been to court in the august um and that she was due obviously to return to school at the beginning of september and the judge ruled that the training of the teachers and her statement all needed to be sorted for her actually returning to school so i think they had three weeks two and a half or three weeks to put everything in place and they did put it in place oh fantastic they did but unfortunately for our daughter she didn't return to school and I remember the principal of the school ringing me and she was distraught and she said but we have everything here now in place and I said you know she felt it was it was so wasted um and I said no it's not because I said um the next child that walks through your doors with this profile you have everything already in place you'll know what you're doing um and I said it will support other other children and I said in doing that it'll support their families absolutely yeah and it's it's so it was as you sort of said it was a battle literally from start to finish and 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 how's your daughter doing now where is she She's at home with us. Um, she didn't return to any sort of formal education um, after that. She completed her first year of, of GCSEs, but didn't then go back for her second year. Um, she's an exceptionally intelligent girl. She has taught herself Japanese. She hopes one day How uh, to visit Japan um, and be able to navigate her way um, and do everything that she'll need to do for her mum and dad because neither of us have a clue about Japanese (laughs) um, and have no intention of learning it Um, but yes she has she has goals and I've always said you know she 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 went through a period of time where she was very um, angry with herself that she wasn't able to complete education that she wasn't able to be as independent as she could be and get those exams. And I said, you know what? I returned to education to do an ICT course in my 30s. And I said, I then decided at 47 years of age to go and do my Ollie coach training. And I said, and I continue to say that she's all the time in the world and she'll do what she needs to do when the time's right. And that's it. And I think the thing is, is that we never stop learning. And and no. that learning, when it is a choice, is made so much easier for us, isn't it? Yes. Rather than just sort of trying to shove a square peg into a round hole the whole time. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, most it, definitely. It's when we're ready to receive that education mm. and take on that learning that um, that's that's when it's so beneficial. You're, yeah. you're right. I mean, because I'm, I'm ripe old age of 57 and I'm still learning and loving it. Um, but there was a, a bit of a sort of drought where I wasn't doing terribly much. So you're quite right. We have I mean, this activity. Yeah, I, I was, I described myself as just a mum, which looking back was very derogatory because I'm so much more than just a mum. But at that time, I was that stay-at-home mum for 18 years. I gave up my career, not just because of my family, um, because of my own um, health issues with the lung condition that I have. Um and I'd had a car accident at the time and I was working night duty to suit the family because we had no childcare. And I just thought, you know, there's more to life than this. But looking back, you know, I can say I needed to be that oh, stay-at-home mum. I wouldn't absolutely. have had it any other way because I often say to my husband, who was going to give up their career? Who was going to be, you know, the parent that was going to stay at home? Um, but yeah. That's it's it's true what you're saying. You're, we're always learning. I never thought for one minute after 18 years at home that I could be anything other than mum. But I proved myself wrong. <laughs> Something so much more because you are now an Ollie coach. I am. 
Um, tell us about that because I think um, parents. I, and, and needless to say, I will be putting all the information and links in the show notes. But tell us a bit more about Ollie, his superpowers, and how you fit in to sort of help kids, um, you know, that need the support. I remember we were on holiday and I had been volunteering for about four years with two different groups. Uh, The first group was supporting parents who had a child with additional needs and supporting them through that statementing process. Um, And then another group that was uh, delivering emotional well-being programs in primary schools. So I was going and doing that. But I always used to come away thinking, what do I do now? You know, those those kids, we go in and we do this. And there was always maybe one or two that would have said something. And you think, oh, I would love to have been going back and doing a wee bit more one-to-one with that child. Because you'd maybe have a classroom somewhere between 20 and 30 children. And I remember we were on holiday in the November of that year. And I couldn't sleep. And I had a copy of the Psychologies magazine with me. And it was the middle of the night. And I actually woke my husband up and I said, you've got to read this. Um, and he said, is it that important? I said, no, it's so important. You've got to read this. And the Psychologies magazine had an advert um, for Ollie coaches to join this army of coaches. And I remember thinking at the time, you know what? Yeah, I can do that. This is me. Yeah, I can definitely do this. And then came home and thought, nah, what are you at? There's no way you can go and do this. You know, that old thing off, those limiting beliefs that we talk about. No, no imposter yeah, syndrome. Oh, totally. <laughs> You've been at home for 18 years. Who do you think you are? Oh, tell me about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, Um, And it was my husband one Friday evening said, have you emailed um, Ollie and his superpowers yet? And I said, no, no, I don't think I will. And he literally stood over me and he said, right, mum, just do it. And I thought, well, okay, let's do it. So I sent the email and I got a phone call the following week and I had an interview via Skype. And I remember at the time, Ali Knowles, who is Ollie's creator, um, sent me about Skype and I, I thought, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, I can do that. And coming off and going to my daughter, what is Skype? <laughs> you know, what do I do here? What, help? Um and because the interviews were being held in London, she said, no, no, we, we don't expect you to come over. So I had my interview and obviously it went really well. And I signed up to become the first uh, Ollie coach in Ireland. So I qualified in May 19 as a coach. Um, and as, as you had said earlier, th- those core beliefs of the Ollie concept that there are no bad children that all behavior serves a purpose. All behavior is emotionally driven. Yeah. Um, and I remember thinking there are so many children out there. Just like you wouldn't like believe. That this could really, yeah. really help them. And not only help those children, but also help those families that yeah. were like us, that yeah. are like us, those families that are questioning, where do we go next? Those mums and dads who are questioning their their own skills as a parent which is awful um because you you know your child best you know what your child needs you just maybe haven't found it yet um but I remember thinking at the time if 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 our daughter had had an ollie coach someone who could support her with her emotions help her to manage those um things may have been an awful lot different, but we can't look back. You know, I I now can say we had to come through that journey to end up where we are now, that that I'm supporting other parents. And and many, many families are benefiting on the back of, you know, sort of you not having those, you know, I think probably your struggle has, I'm, I'm putting words into your mouth, but maybe sort of put that fire in your belly to sort of, to do more. No, and you're right, Kay. It it, it was a, a struggle. It really yeah. was. Um, and you talk about that fire in my belly. I, I talk about it being that stubborn streak that I've obviously <laughs> inherited somewhere along the line. The, you know, there was no way that um, I was letting go. There was no way I, I was ready to fight and battle for my child because it's I knew exhausting, she needed April. Some, It is. I, I, it, I it, it is. 
you know, I'm seeing so many parents who are in tears, who are just going, I don't know where to turn. I'm, uh, they won't, they won't take my child in cams because it's not mental health. It's yeah. behavioral, but no one will give yeah. me a diagnosis. So we can't say what the behavior problems are. And it's just a catch 22. And, and it's, it's, it's how par- parents just don't feel heard. I think that's the problem. That, and, yeah. And, that, and that's it. it. It's, it is through, and this is why I knew that we needed to sort of have you on because it's allowing other parents to go bloody hell. Yes, it's hard, but it is so worth it in the end. That yeah, continued. You know, to, I mean, let's hope not everyone has to sort of push for a judicial blimmin' review, but yeah. to know that there is light at the end of the tunnel, and that I, I think we struggle as parents to you know. Well, sometimes we sort of feel that we need to trust the experts. Other times we are sort of rattled with guilt because we keep thinking we don't know what we're doing and we've got it wrong. And I think your story is a massive story of hope um, that it it really sometimes, even though it is a battle, it's well worth it. Yeah, uh, I can look back and I can pinpoint those times when I struggled. I really struggled. And it's hard to express that. It's hard to express where you get to a stage of you're questioning yourself as a woman. You're questioning yourself as a parent, as a wife. I felt that I was, I questioned absolutely everything about my life. And we're not going to look back and say, oh, yeah, that was such a hard time and poor me. And But I, I do remember occasions where, I just felt, you know what, somebody else take these kids off my hands because I've I've done, I'm done, I've had enough. And I remember a number of occasions watching the clock, having made the dinner, waiting on my husband coming home from work. And as soon as he came in, I literally put my coat on and he would say, where are you going? I'm going to Asda. What did we need? I could have got it on the way home. We don't need anything. I just need out. And... <laughs> You know, I can look back now and, and I, can, I, can, actually, isn't it? I yeah. can, it yes, at the time it was horrendous that I was yeah. watching the clock, waiting for my husband to come home to, so that I could escape. That was my escape because there was nowhere else for me to go. There was yeah. no support system there. Now I can look back with a bit of humor and say, my God, where was my head? But after we all that, there. Do you know, that was self-care. We all yeah, talk absolutely. about self-care, about needing an understanding that at times we need to put ourselves first as parents as mums um and i'm i'm not i'm not giving off about the dads by no means um but as mums and as me as that stay at home mum i needed mm-hmm. an outlet and going to asda and walking around and aimlessly yeah was my self care at that time um and the one thing that is so important that I I can look back now on and say, self-care is really important, whether it's going to ASDA just to get out to have a break yeah. or whether it's half an hour to yourself in a bath with a book or whatever. If it's a drive in the car with no music on, just quietness. I've done all of those things. Yeah. And I went through that guilt of I should be with my children I should be with my child she needs my support I've let go of all that guilt I realized I'm no good to my children I'm no good to my child if I'm falling apart yeah so I need to look after me to be the best mom that I can have that inner strength isn't it yeah but it's, it's not only that it's it's Yes, the self-care and yes, the sort of looking after yourself. But I so applaud you for just trusting your gut, going in for that sort of, you know, that 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 um, the mama intuition, knowing that whatever the experts were saying that they were wrong, whatever needed to be done, it it you know, you you literally sort of championed this right up to the the, the courts because you deep, deep down knew that little voice inside you wouldn't shut up? No, no, it wouldn't. Um, I was an advocate for my child. 
And for many more to come after that, though. Well, That's the wonderful yeah. thing. You know, yeah. you probably didn't feel it at the time. No, no, yeah. because I, I felt very isolated. Um, I felt very lonely at times because I felt I must be the only parent having to go through this. And I realized, especially when I was volunteering, I realized I'm not the only parent that feels like this. I'm not the only parent out there who needs some support, who needs to find answers and needs to know the best way to understand and support their child. Um, and yeah, that, that thing about gut instinct, you know, it's it's so important. If you feel something is right or if you feel something isn't right, yes. that you go with it and you do something about it. Yeah. The fact that now the school is equipped to, and they will be able to recognise alarm bells and red flags so much earlier than they ever did with with, yeah. with your daughter as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and they, they also now can have that support for totally. the parents, the family. Totally. For the whole yeah. family, isn't it? Yeah. Um, tell us a little it is. bit about... It is. Sorry, tell us a little bit about um, the Ollie, you know, your sort of Ollie coaching and how you sort of help the kids just sort of finally. Okay. Well, I suppose what I, I, I should say, first of all, we talked about Ali Knowles. Ali was um, a hypnotherapist. She's been lots of things. And she did a lot of training in, in mental health therapies. Okay. And she would say that a lot of those therapies that are out there about are about putting children, putting people in boxes. And for her, it wasn't about labeling you know, you don't have to have a label. You don't have to fit in a box. Everybody's unique. Everybody's different. And she very quickly realized that she needed to approach things differently with children. So the Ollie and his superpowers concept came about. And she she talks about the superpowers. There are emotions. And rather than labeling emotions as good and bad, mm -hmm. um, which I suppose, maybe I'm assuming, but we're all guilty of that. The emotions that maybe don't make us feel so good, we see them as very negative or for children as, as, as bad emotions. Yeah, totally. And the one thing that she realized was that children that were coming or parents that were coming to her talking about um, children's behaviors, that it wasn't about that behavior up here. Um, and she talks about the branches of a tree, what, you know, those what we're seeing in the branches. Um, she talked about getting to the root of the, of the issue, the root of the problem. So when I'm working with children, obviously the first port of call, the parent comes to me and we have a chat. Um, I'll ask some questions. They'll ask some questions. I, I describe it as a, a, a fact-finding expedition. It's about, am I the right fit for them and their child? Mm -hmm. Am I the right person? Can I support them? Can I support their child? And I would always say, I'm not just working with that child. I'm working with the family and usually the parents or one parent. And the relief on a parent's face yeah. oh, totally. when that penny drops, that there's that belief that the child is angry, whether that's a label that has come from school or a professional or from wherever. As a parent, then you believe, and I did for, for long enough, I believed I was a parent that my child was, was badly behaved. Yeah. If you're constantly being told your child is angry, your child is sad, your child is whatever, that's what you then believe. But with the techniques that we use as Dolly coaches, we drill down from those branches to that root to find out what the actual emotion is that's driving the behaviours that they're presenting with. And what might present in a child as anger or as sad can be something completely different. And taking my daughter, you know, that anger, that extreme anger um, that she presented with was actually sadness and anxiety when, you know, looking back, I can see that now. Yeah. Um, and just when that penny drops that there's a way to support this child, that we can get this child through this. And with younger children and 
adults as well, because they love that concept of the superpowers. Mm -hmm. Teenagers are a little bit different. We talk about the emotions or we talk about feelings. Um, They're a whole different ballgame, which you know all about. Um, (laughs) But um, the superpowers, you know, that is letting us know that they're just our emotions. They're part of us. They have a job to do. One maybe just gets a little bit too big and needs support from other superpowers to to get it back to a manageable size. And using that concept with children that they should all sort of be in around the same size, that there's no one particular superpower in charge. Um, And let's take anger as an example. You know, we don't want anger to be the biggest superpower because then you're going to present as angry all the time. How can we help angry not be so angry? Yeah. So we build a team of superpowers and it's about getting children to think about what emotion could help angry to not be so angry. Yeah. This is absolute gold yeah. because many of the kids don't even know what these blimmin' emotions are. They don't yeah. they don't know the difference between because I think anger manifests first because it's the primary. Um, but it it isn't, as you said, the, the root is very rarely just well anger at all sometimes. Yeah. And, and but if 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 the adults and the kids don't have the emotional vocabulary or the emotional intelligence to know what these things are I guess you know your coaching program can sort of strengthen the vocabulary but tease it out of them I guess yeah Yeah. that's that's exactly right Um, because you have a child coming who believes and we're using angry you know I have a child that comes who then believes I'm angry I must be angry because everybody's telling me I'm angry. Um, And I had a little boy recently who's eight, who presented as being an extremely angry child. And through our sessions, we got to that root and we got to why the root was there. He was a very scared child. And the reason he was scared was because mom and dad had noticed that he didn't want to go outside on his own or didn't want to play in his room, didn't want doors closed. He became a very scared child. And that's the word he used with me, but I'm scared. And mom and dad had split up in recent times. Everything was very amicable. The child stayed with mom, but also stayed with dad. But the uncertainty of his future made him scared. So even though he was doing things and saying things and had the behaviours that his parents were seeing as anger, as extremely angry, he was actually just a scared, unhappy wee boy. Yeah. Um, So he now has lots of um, tools in his little chest that um, he got. Uh, So he knows when, when that superpower of scared gets too big, this is what I can do. And this is the team that can help scared not be so scared. So he had calm and he had happy and he had brave. Um, And those were part of his super team that he could call upon when angry or sorry, when scared got too big. So it's, it's, it's a very basic way of supporting children. And it's not basic at all. It is it is. It is so clever and it is equipping mm. kids with the tools they need to um to 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 sort of deal with obstacles yes. and challenges and it is equipping the child to, to become the adult that they need to because yeah jolly well I mean, there are loads of adults that could have done with this in, in, in their own childhood. I mean I we can when I say be a sick. I suppose what I mean by that is there is nothing complicated. Yes. We can we can use this technique not only with children yeah. who are very young. We use it with teenagers. Yeah. We use it with adults. And it's just about because lots of people think, oh, it's just for children. You know, it's yeah. it's very child oriented. No, it's not. I I I just change the language that I use dependent on the exactly. person that's sitting in front of me. Yeah, but the actual techniques and the concept never changes. But, but um, 
in fairness, if we are struggling, whatever age, with with our emotions and how to deal with them, we actually do need to go back to basics, don't we? We really do. And yeah. that's, I mean, I am so passionate that this is something that we should be using before children and young people and adults get to crisis point. Yes. If we use these concepts and if we use these techniques and give young children these tools from four or five years of age, using that language, knowing that they can call upon their other emotions to support an emotion. You know, that I would just like to think that we may have less mental health problems. We may have less suicide. And we may have adults who have got to the stage of their lives where all those limiting beliefs, they've dealt with them. That's my mission. And 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 for that I I just can't thank you enough for coming on because it's it's um I know this will have given many listeners a lot of hope. Um and um I will put your details in the show notes, Avril, because I, I need and want more people to know about um Ollie, you know, the Ollie concept, but also to know that your story your story is um the start of it is is very similar to many many people um and let's hope that let's hope the parents in the future don't have the struggles that you had to endure let's hope yeah. that you know um but Abel, thank you my love thank you so much thank you very much for having me and giving me the opportunity to not only tell my story but to hopefully let parents know that that light at the end of the tunnel that we talk about, there is that light. There is. Um, the one thing I would say is that, you know, obviously I work privately and you, you talked about CAMS. CAMS is such a huge waiting list. My daughter attended CAMS, but because she couldn't do talking therapies, she was discharged. What I would say is that for parents who would like some sort of support or like to know how they could support their Mm -hmm. child or children. If they do go on to the website, there are lots of free workbooks that they can download that give them an idea about the superpowers and um, what they can do with them and how they can support their children. Thank you so much. Not at all. Thank you. Thank you. I'll speak to you soon. Thank you very much. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to this entire podcast. If you want to help other parents looking for support, then please share this with your friends and family. Because if you found this podcast useful, then they will too. So please share via your social media. If you have any parenting questions, then please give me a shout through my email, which is toolbox at And I may even use your question as a future podcast episode. If you want to connect, please come and join me on Instagram. Just search for Kai Graham. Also, could you do me a favour, please? Parenting teenagers can feel very confusing and isolating at times. And I believe that it takes a village to raise a child. And we are here to support one another. I'd love it if you would leave a review on iTunes. And a good one, by the way. (laughs) Because when you do, it lets more parents out there know that there is support for them too. Thank you. And as always, this comes with much love.